Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page and free. One, two, tres, cuatro. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we'll hear from some of our past guests, ranging from Todd Rundgren to Tune Yards, about songs they can't live without. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. But first, the story of the infamous music festival, Woodstock 99. Greg, the two of us uh, weren't at Woodstock 99. We'd learned our lesson by enduring the mud and the overflow <laughs> from the porta potties at Woodstock 94. Friend of the podcast, Stephen Hyden, uh, wasn't at the festival either, Woodstock 99, but he was fascinated by what happened there, and it, and it was a, a curiosity that engaged him for years. Two years ago, he hosted the podcast Break Stuff, which systematically examined and reported on how three days of alleged peace, love, and music uh, turned into riots, fires, and most tragically, sexual assaults. Now he's lending his expertise to the new HBO documentary, Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, which premiered last week. The film's not the feel-good hit of the summer. That's a mild understatement. In fact, it made me physically ill watching it, and I'm not saying that lightly at all. I was really, really uh, overwhelmed by just how horrific it was. You know, when it comes to disturbing uh, music documentaries, it is the most disturbing since uh, Gimme Shelter. But... Questionable decisions are still being made about music festivals, including right in our own backyard with Lollapalooza happening in the middle of a global pandemic. We thought there'd be no better time to sort out the truth from the myth when it comes to that most mythical of music festivals, the brand known as Woodstock. Well, I think the point that I think was really well done was that the previous two Woodstocks were not all they were made out to be either. Yeah, and... In a way, I feel like the expectation going into Woodstock '99 would, was that we finally figured it out. Like we're, we we figured out a way to, well, for one thing, keep gate crashers out, which was an issue with right. the festival in '69 and in '94, which obviously affected the bottom line of the people who put it on. I mean, Not really, the experience of the concert goer, no, but the uh, the bottom line of the people who promoted the concert. Yes, so. With 99, they had this genius idea, if you want to call it that, to have the festival on a military base or a former military base yeah. uh, in upstate New York. You know, it's a military base, so it's much easier to fortify from intruders than these more, uh, you know, typically Woodstock settings, you know, in the country. People are just like walking over a fence to get in to the festival. Um, of course, the problem with having it on a military base or among the problems is that there are no trees anywhere and it's just a bunch of asphalt. And when you factor in that this takes place in July and it's one of the hottest weekends of, of, of the summer uh, with temperatures getting up near 8, 90 degrees, uh, yeah, it, it's just one of the many things that made it, I think, a very difficult experience for the people who were there. 
it is ironic uh, knowing the outcome, knowing the end of the story, as Greg and I did and you did when we're, when we're watching this footage and the story unfold in the documentary, uh, to hear John Sher, the New York promoter, who I had long considered one of the good guys. I mean, I grew up in New York. I went to a million John Sher or Ron Delsner concerts. And in the Live Nation universe of the corporate megaliths controlling the concert world, he's one of the handful of remaining independents. Right. But but to hear Cher say this is perfect. This place has the infrastructure. Oh, yeah. It doesn't have bathrooms for 100,000 people. You know, we, we see like one abused water fountain that people start showering in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it didn't have the infrastructure. It had fences so that people couldn't sneak in for free. Yeah. I mean, this really is a snapshot of a different time in the history of music festivals. Because as you both know, in the 90s, there weren't as many American festivals as there are today. You know, you didn't have Coachella. Coachella started right, basically right after Woodstock 99. And Lollapalooza came back as a festival set up there in Chicago. It used to be a touring festival in the 90s. So this idea of like a festival just having the same location every year, like where you have the same staff, you have people who know how to run it. It's almost like a year-long business to have this festival. Well, it's, yeah. it's like a sports stadium. Right, right, exactly. You know, they're built to accommodate forty-five to 60,000 people. Right. But, but a park ground or a, an abandoned former air base are not. Yeah, and they're, and they're also hiring all of their staff on the fly. I mean, this is something the film doesn't get too much into, but just the way that they put together their security staff, for instance. It, it's not that they were poorly trained. They were not trained at all. Uh, mm-hmm, and, yeah. and it was not the best and brightest that they were hiring uh, for these jobs. And when you see the film and you see, for instance, you know, people breaking water pipes because yeah. it's so hot and they just want to cool off and it creates this muddy mess when the porta potties overflowing because they don't have enough of them. You know, these are all things that were anticipated by local officials before the festival. But there was this, I think, belief that you know, Woodstock had this history of being like, well, the original festival, it was sort of on the fly, and yeah, there were problems, but because of the spirit of the festival, everyone just came together, and it was this really groovy time. And, <laughs> you know, and it's all going to work out, no, even if things go wrong. You know, com- um, completely written out of even the 69 mythologizing is the fact that mere months later, Altamont happened. Right. Well, and even at the original Woodstock, there were riots that occurred. There were there were right. people that were upset about how much was was being charged for food, so they burned down food stands. Mm-hmm. This is something that wasn't talked about in the movie. I, I talked about it in my podcast. There was very nearly a mass electrocution event at the original yeah, Woodstock. Yeah. There was this main wire that was taking uh, electricity to the stage that was being worn down by all these sneakers, all these hippies walking mm-hmm. over it. And the organizers decided that instead of cutting the power until they could redirect it, that they would keep the concert going because they didn't want to have a riot if they stopped the music. So they were able to fix that problem. But if they were, you know, maybe a couple minutes off, literally tens of thousands of people could have died at the original Woodstock. And there were deaths at the Peace and Love 69 Woodstock, yeah? Right. Well, yeah, there was a guy that got run over by a tractor he was sleeping right. in his sleeping bag mm-hmm. uh i know that occurred you know i was thinking about this you know you mentioned altamont and of course that was the topic of another classic movie gimme shelter that came out 
I believe it came out about seven months after the Woodstock film in 1970. And mm-hmm. I've, I, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, what if in Gimme Shelter they hadn't caught the murder of Meredith Hunter on film? Or what if he had been killed off camera, like deeper into the crowd? Right. Similar to how the guy at Woodstock was killed off camera. Right. Nobody saw it. Or if the Hells Angels weren't beating up people in front of the stage, in front of the cameras, but they were doing it somewhere else. Right. Maybe Altamont, maybe Gimme Shelter would have been a different film. Maybe it would have been more like, oh, isn't this a groovy time with the Rolling Stones? You know, it, the film Woodstock, it's a great film, I think, as just a cinematic experience. But as journalism, it just leaves a lot out. You know, and, do you think it's a good film, Greg? Woodstock? Yeah. I, you know, the performances, I actually think, were the, the, the strength of the movie. But I think the event itself was sort of uh, idealized and mythologized. And there was this notion, Lang bring, Michael Lang, the promoter, the original promoter, he promoted all three Woodstocks, was talking about this idea of a community coming together. And we'll just, it, it'll happen, things will go wrong, but people will come together, man. They'll love each other and help each other. And that's what happened at the first Woodstock. And they're perpetuating this myth, oh, that'll happen in 94. Well, it really didn't. I was there. I watched yeah, the whole thing I, happen. As was I. It wasn't a bunch of people banding together, but we got through that week without a major you know, incident happening. There was a lot of bad stuff that happened. But in 99, it just went all wrong. And, and Cher, and uh, they're all pointing their fingers at the kids. The kids screwed up. Fred they Durst. blew it. It's they blew Fred their Durst opportunity. Fred Durst Lim- started Limp the Biscuit. riot. What did they think was going to happen, you know? Well, John Cher, too, and he, he said this when I interviewed him for the podcast, he, to this day, blames Kurt Loder specifically yeah. for the negative coverage. MTV News made it into as if it was an animal fest, and it just wasn't. Bloodthirsty maniacs trying to kill me. It was disgusting. I was molested, and I hate all men now. So terribly got manipulated by MTV, especially Kurt Loder. He just wasn't on the team. If the media hadn't covered it the way that they had, then then we would remember Woodstock 99 differently. It's it's actually a very similar argument that we're having right now about the original Woodstock. Like yeah. For Cher, he felt that, well, well, you're just focusing on the negative stuff. What about all the people that had a good time? And to be fair, there were people that had a good time at Woodstock 99, but <laughs> you still had fires at the end. You still had mass theft, mass vandalism, you still had literally dozens of instances of of sexual assault, probably much more than that, because when you watch this film, it's incredible, because, you know, we take footage from the pay-per-view that went out that weekend, and they're just showing random crowd shots, and even in these quick shots, you see so many instances of men just reaching up and like grabbing women's naked breasts, you know, yeah. like it's like it's no big deal at all. Yeah. That happens over and over and over again there. Um, it, it's just, uh, like you said, it, it's a difficult film, I think, to watch at it's times. It's very disturbing, yeah. Uh, but I think appropriately so. You know, I think Garrett Price, the director, you know, he's talked about this. The natural, I think, comparison to make to this film are like the Fire Festival documentaries that came out a few years ago. But I think the difference yeah. with this film is that those films tend to be, uh, there's like a lot of schadenfreude in those movies. And it's really, I think, about laughing at the people who were silly enough to go to, the, to this 
festival and get duped and yeah. and laughing at the organizers. And I think people have done that with Woodstock 99, too. Uh, but th- this film is not a comedy. Mm-hmm. This is a horror film. And I think it's appropriately so. Yeah, Very yeah. moving interviews with that one young man who, whose best friend died. You know, they went for the music, you know. Right. Nobody signed up to risk There's their life. There's something... Maybe it's because of movies like Woodstock. It creates this fantasy, I think, that people have about a festival being a larger-than-life, almost transformative experience. And people talk about that in our Woodstock 99 film, these kids who are going to this festival who feel like it's going to be more than just a regular concert, that this is going to be something really special. And only because it's called Woodstock, really. You know, but it's like, we're going to Woodstock. We're going to have this experience that we've seen on film. And even though Woodstock now, I mean, I think that brand is diminished. I think now if you're talking to a kid born in the 21st century, maybe they fantasize about going to Coachella. Like, that would be their fantasy. But even at Coachella, there's a similar mythology that exists with a festival like that where... We're going to go. It's where the cool people are, this amazing setting. Uh, and it never really lives up to the hype, I don't think. I you think, know? Uh, you know, I agree. And I think one of the reasons is that they'd mentioned this in the Woodstock 99 film where suddenly the audience, you know, got younger by five years, you know, from the previous Woodstock five years before. It suddenly was this different audience. It was younger. To me, what, why do people go? If you're of a certain age, uh, I would say probably under 21, it's a rite of passage. It is that kind of event you'll never forget. You're basically at home with your parents for the most part, or you're in college with your friends, and then you come home for your parents. And this is like three days without your parents. It's like a vacation. And probably somebody else besides you is paying for it. Well, with essentially no parents anywhere. No supervision. You know, $100,000 It us. is a dream come true. <laughs> there are cool bands. I love Limp Biscuit. You heard those guys in the movie. You know, just yeah. talking about their 19-year-old selves and what idiots they were. They were burning stuff. They were stealing things. And they go, when in Rome, I guess, we, you know, we don't normally act like that, but we yeah. were with 400,000 other like-minded people. I think that's the appeal. Like, 19-year-old me, I'd go to that. I'd right. want to be there. I would like, wow, I wish I was there. You know what kills me, though, is songs like Joni Mitchell's Woodstock. Joni Mitchell's a great songwriter, but if you listen to that song, you go... Holy mackerel, she got snookered. Somebody told her how great this thing was, and she wrote a song about it, and it's basically memorialized the event for a lot of people. Like, wow, this must have been incredible. We are stardust. We are golden. And we got to get ourselves back to the And that's another layer to what we're talking about here, because Joni Mitchell, of course, didn't actually go to Woodstock. I mean, her right. da- she her- didn't go. She got the secondhand version of it. Yeah, she was. Her, I think her and David Geffen were like they were gonna go, and then David Geffen was like, "That looks dirty," so they just stayed in a hotel room in New York City and like watched yeah. stuff on TV. Well, yeah, and but- then her pals came back. Stephen Stills and Graham Nash told her all about it and said, "Hey, it was really cool. You should have been there." You know, so yeah, she wrote it- that song. It, to speak to your point, Greg, I mean, there's a we have footage of a kid in 1999 at the festival who says something like, you know, the rules of society don't apply here, you know. And going back to your point about how I think for 
a lot of people, and I think this is even true of festivals now, that people do look at it as a vacation from, like, how they have to act in the outside world. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the outside world, you can't really start, you know, smoking weed and drinking at like 10 o'clock in the morning, but you can do that at a music festival. You can be louder. You can maybe be more provocative sexually than you would be in your normal life. And it is this almost like Lord of the Flies, like, experiment that takes place in, in in these places i think too the other thing about young people when they when they go out on these adventures for the first time i know this was true for me you know you don't really think about things like food and water or even like oh no yeah you know planning all the stuff if you're going to be camping like bringing all the proper gear you, you just hop in the car and you go and right that makes that group of people especially vulnerable in a situation like this where at Woodstock, you know, it, I think this probably happens at festivals now, like the water's overpriced, you yeah. know, the food's overpriced. And sometimes you just choose not to drink water. Or you just choose not to eat because you don't have the money to do it and you're young and you don't really think you need to do it. And the beer is the same price as the water. Mm. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So and drink, it's like right? if you're young... You're going to pick the beer and not the water because the beer is more fun in the short term. When we return, we continue our discussion about Woodstock 99 and what on earth its organizers were thinking. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. And we're back. We're talking with music journalist Stephen Hyden about Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, a very disturbing documentary now available on HBO. Really, the only two people in the film who defend the festival are promoter Michael Lang, the face of all three Woodstock festivals, and New York independent concert promoter John Scher. I asked Stephen what he thought motivated the two of them. The thing with Lang is that I think that and this was true at the original festival too, because he had partners. Uh, there were three other guys that organized yeah. Woodstock with him. Lang was always the guy that like partied with people. Like he was out in the festival having a good time, while his buddies were doing like the stressful work, the hard work. Right. So it, it kind of allowed Lang to be the laid back, cool rock star guy. Um, and I think that it allows him to have this sort of like boyish, hippie, dippy veneer all these years later. Whereas someone like John Cher, I think, was more in the trenches and he's much more of the bad cop, I think, in the movie. In a way, I respect Cher because there's no BS with him. I think mm-hmm. that Lang, in a way, has been BSing for so long that he believes it, you know? Mm-hmm. He yeah. doesn't know the difference between BS and truth. Cher, he has some terribly out-of-date ideas, I think, about, for instance, whether women deserve to be assaulted if they're not wearing a lot of clothes, which is something he talks about in the film. Like, he Mm. he essentially victim blames. I am critical of the hundreds of women that were walking around with no clothes on and expecting not to be touched. They shouldn't have been touched, and, and I condemn it. But, you know, I think that women that were running around naked you know, or at least partially to blame for that. As, as a journalist, like, you, you want someone to be that open with their point of view, even if it's, like, a totally despicable opinion. It's like, well, that's how he really thinks. And, and he said it to me in our podcast, and then he said it again 
in the film. And both times, I, I couldn't believe that he actually said that out loud. Yeah. And that seems to come, again, from... You know, if you want to call that the dark side of the 60s, you know, the sexual revolution, this idea of like, well, you know, free love is for men to take advantage of women. You know, I mean, that's, that seems to be the mentality there. Like, yeah. I'm a guy, I want to touch you, you're a woman, and I can do it. The way that filters down in a very toxic way at Woodstock 99, I think, is also part of the story. That's a great point, and I just wondered how much the sociology, because they, you know, the, the film makes an attempt to contextualize uh, Woodstock 99 in, in what was happening, not only in, in music at the time. We had this heinous rap rock, uh, you know, trend, you know, Corn, Limp Bizkit, et cetera, Kid Rock. And we also had, you know, the, the broader culture, the, uh, the MTV culture, the, uh, you know, uh, Girls Gone Wild you know, promiscuity culture, Clinton, Lewinsky scandal in the White House. Things were falling apart at the seams sociologically, uh, thus giving us the angry white male with the turn-back baseball cap. I kept seeing the and, future Trump crowd yes. in that Woodstock crowd. So, and the, the, the seeds for Eminem have been laid, right? The, this kind of whole culture of you know, broism, right? Misogyny, homophobia, racism. Frat boy culture. You had broism started at Woodstock '99 or right around that time. I think Garrett Price, the director, gets deserves a lot of credit for that. That's something that I touched on in my podcast, but he really developed more, and I think he does it in a pretty nuanced way. Because on one hand, you're right; the film does look at how in 1999 there was this very permissive attitude about misogyny in, in culture where it was like openly catering to it, where you had girls gone wild. Like the first American Pie where you Shannon Elizabeth is taking off her clothes on a video cam and you see all these young boys watching her delightfully. Mm -hmm. And it's like this mainstream comedy and it's supposed to be just taken at face value as a hilarious thing. You know, it just got filtered down that far in yeah. culture, that type of attitude. So the, you're right, there is that toxic element in the film, but I think there's also another element that, that Garrett really teases out well, talking about the top-down nature of the world in 1999, yeah. that it was very easy for people in power to dictate to regular folks like how the world was going to be, and you started to see people rebelling against that, like N Napster being an example, for instance, like Napster coming out in 1999. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there is a connection to be made at Woodstock 99 that like, you know, yeah, there were a lot of goons there, but there were also like regular people that were just abused for like a couple of days, like in this terrible environment. And then they ended up snapping at the end. You know, like mm -hmm. we, like there's a guy that I interviewed in my pod that's also in the movie who he's just like this very mild mannered, guy who participated in the riot you know and he didn't like hurt anybody he basically like took some frozen pretzels and ran around with other people yeah they broke having... into trailers they yeah. took the water they were not gonna buy and yeah they took the pretzels yeah he makes the point or i think maybe the security guard there makes the point that that was the first time that that woodstock spirit of togetherness was actually felt you know, where people <laughs> right. could bond yeah, together at the end against this entity of the festival that really, mm. I think, in their eyes was this kind of disgusting monster. You know, it's like, we're regular people, we're going to band together, we're going to slay this capitalist, exploitive yeah. beast. Not that I'm justifying 
the riots that happened at the end of the festival. But I think that adds some nuance to it. That it's not just... Yeah, there were a lot of toxic bros there. But there were also like people that I think rightfully so felt angry about how they were treated. And this was a way for them to express that. The most real thing was those kids reacting. You know, at right. the end. It's like, th- that was a totally unscripted, spontaneous... Uh, and and uh, the film makes the point that the bands sort of egg them on. Right. If it hadn't been for the bands, it probably, maybe it wouldn't have happened, maybe it would have, I don't know. But if you'd well, had... Cher makes that If point. you've had an entire he lineup of Alanis that. Morissette type of figures on the stage, as opposed to Limp Bizkit, Korn, Kid Rock, Rage Against the Machine, it wouldn't Lost have happened. Spring. That's the assumption you're making. And yet, I'm saying that those bands were in no way rebels. They were multimillionaires exploiting a bunch of 19-year-old kids in a field. That's, yeah, I mean, that's essentially what it was. And, you know, and this is something that is touched on in the movie about just the arc of the 90s, which I think is a... And that's another reason why I think it's interesting to talk about Woodstock 99 because the 90s began in a much different place culturally than they ended up. You know, at the beginning of the 90s, you had grunge, you had Riot Girl, you had a culture that I think was much more progressive politically. And I think that there was an idea... I, I was a kid at that time. I was 14, 15 years old. And I remember feeling like these bands are going to change the world, you know, and maybe that's something that only a teenager thinks, but I did look at them idealistically. And I think a lot of people my age did. And, um, when you get to the end of the nineties, you know, the nineties were a pretty, I think, decadent time, you know, we, there was a lot of money. There wasn't a whole lot of strife going on in America, at least not in the mainstream that you saw in the media. Um, I think people were bored, and when you know when you're rich and you're bored, I think that leads to a certain kind of nihilism that happens in culture. And it seemed like the '90s got more and more nihilistic as you got towards the end of the decade, where it was much more about what can I do to make myself feel good right now. Yeah. And, and to me, that's what those bands ultimately were about. Um, even the good ones, like I think I would delineate Corn, for instance, from Limp Bizkit. I think that Jonathan Davis in the movie. And when I've interviewed him, I think he's a more thoughtful guy than some of the other people from that scene. <laughs> um, I mean, I think a two-by-four is more thoughtful than Fred Durst. <laughs> well, but be that as it may, story. that's just another thing that I think that makes that such a fascinating event uh, in terms of the subtext of it. That it really does, I think, signify just the nihilism of that time. Like, I'm going to do what makes me happy, and I don't care if it hurts another person. That's well said, Stephen. And the film captures it well. It's a horrifying document on so many levels. Uh, I think, first and foremost, is the sexual assault. We have a dedicated group here in Chicago, our music, My Body, right, that is trying to fight the predominant broism at every festival. Mm-hmm. It's there at Pitchfork. It's there at Riot Fest. It's there at Lollapalooza. How on earth are we still fighting this? And how did we get from Courtney Love or L7? How did we get from that sort of progressive feminism and simultaneously in the underground Riot Girls happening to... Dozens of sexual assaults happening uh, in full view of plenty of people who could have stopped them at 99. Yeah, I, I, I think an argument that the film tries to make is that it's bigger than just the music festival, that there was a permissiveness, I think, about exploiting women that was pervasive in the culture, that uh, w- 
it wasn't just in music, it was in film, it was in television, it was in politics. Um, it was on campuses? On uh, campuses, and I, I think that also feeds into the nostalgia for the original Woodstock, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll aspect of it. You mm. know, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, one of the enduring images of the original Woodstock is naked people rolling around in the mud. And then yeah. you look at the next two Woodstocks, and it's kids rolling around in the mud. You know, right. like they're they're play acting things that they've seen in the film. Right. And and then you add the fact that the security was so non-existent at, at Woodstock that because of it was just like this mass of people with like no barriers to separate, you know, like one mass from another mass, that's, that the security basically could not get into the crowd and yeah. there was no way for them to, to interrupt uh, anything. There's a horrifying quote from an EMT who said, I worked, I worked Hurricane Katrina, and Hurricane Rita, and Hurricane Sandy. But whenever people ask me about Woodstock 99, I always say that it was the, the greatest disaster I ever went to. Every single night, we were doing like a thousand transports, and a lot of them were just dehydrations because people didn't have enough water that day. Well, obviously, the toll of the event, I think, informed that opinion, but also it's like, well, that's a natural disaster, you know, like, and, and people are all together with that. Mm. This was a disaster that people waged on other people and charged them money for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you raise a great point, Jim. I, I hope people watch the movie and it makes them introspective, not just about how things were then, but how things are now. Because you're right, there is still a culture at music festivals of women being groped, you know, women being violated in all sorts of ways. Uh, and it's not just hard rock festivals. It's the indie rock festivals. It's the so-called higher class festivals. I mean, it's everywhere. And I think it's something that we all need to continue to to fight. And Yeah, uh, well, it's hard, it's hard to do. If you've been a beat reporter in Chicago trying to get accurate police reports on the arrests at Lollapalooza, right? Yeah, good and we, we still don't know to this day how many sexual assaults uh, uh, there were at Woodstock 99. You know, and this stuff happens, and it's... it's. Uh, I feel at the end for that mayor of Rome, New York. You know, he thought, oh, this is going to be great. You know, we're going to have money, and people are going to pay attention to my community. It's a Rust Belt kind of place. The industry is left. We got nothing happening. This is going to be wonderful. And then, you know, he made... The city of Rome made $200,000? Yeah. Says It says at the end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Woodstock... Generally, I don't think has ever been like a, a money maker. I mean, that's another irony. Yeah, but they it. sold the paper. Yeah, man. well, it, well, exactly, and that was why the film got made. I mean, the film was what bailed out the original organizers right. because mm -hmm. that right. that made I think fifty million dollars during its initial run, which was like a tremendous amount of money for mm -hmm. a film released in nineteen seventy. I mean, that film was yeah. a huge hit. Yeah, um, and it's still I think a foundational film like. The reason why we remember Woodstock is because of the film. If that film didn't exist, I don't know if there would have been other Woodstocks or lots of other festivals for that matter. Probably true. I mean, way more people saw the film than actually went to the festival. Uh, there's no I mean, doubt about that. You know, I just so. I was just writing something about Summer of Soul, the Questlove movie, which I think in many ways it's one of the answer films to Woodstock mm -hmm. in the same way I think our Woodstock 99 documentary is. And, you know... You watch that film and you're like, well, on the merits of the music, 
this shouldn't be the first that most of us are hearing about this. Yeah. But it was only because he was able to make this film 50 years later that we know about it. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it, I mean, film is such a powerful medium and it's such a way to make things feel immortal, you know, in a way that right. uh, it, it doesn't otherwise. So that aspect of Summer of Soul, I think, is really interesting. The, 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 the dialogue that I think Questlove is having about how we remember history and, and mm-hmm. for what reasons. That seems like a big subtext of that movie, and it feels like a answer in a lot of ways, I think, to what the Woodstock yeah. movie is. No, it's, a, it's an incredible event. I feel like it was well run. You know, it was a series of weekends, I guess, uh, rather than one giant event. But uh, it was incredible, all the same. Beautifully curated. For me, what's the legacy, Stephen? I mean, I've got my views, but Woodstock, after Woodstock 99... We saw a giant proliferation in destination festivals, just like Woodstock, starting with Coachella almost immediately after. You had Bonnaroo, then you had Lollapalooza. You know, you've got these major destination festivals that have cropped up all over the country in its wake. And none of them seem to have really... Have they learned a lesson? Have, are they doing it better? Is there a chance that Woodstock 99 could happen again in the current environment? I don't know. I don't know if something like that dramatic would happen, but I could see a smaller version of it happening, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't. I don't know how you guys feel about that. I mean, it's interesting to me because we we talk about the bands that play at at Woodstock '99, and I think Cher at one point says that I wouldn't have booked Metallica, Rage Against the Machine, and Limp Bizkit on the same night. But like, there's a lot of hard rock festivals that have lineups like that, and they don't have riots. You know, right. I, you know, I just bring that up to say, like, well, it's not just about the music. It's also this terrible environment plus the music. I've been to hard rock festivals and there is, in fact, I mean, there, there, it's a community. Right. It is a community and an underground. There are rules, strict rules in the mosh pit. Whereas, uh, you know, something like Lollapalooza, where they just, I mean, there's no rhyme or reason on that bill. You know, there's Limp Biscuit, and then there's other pop well, stuff, that's a right? Bunch of bands. It's, it's a bunch just, of it's bands just a bunch of bands. Field, Everybody we can recruit, and Coachella has turned into that. You know, from the Radiohead kind of uh, EDM Moby heyday to like, whoever we can book, yeah. big names, big names, big names, and and so as as such, you have no community at these festivals, and when there is no community, there is no responsibility, and when there is no sense of personal responsibility to my brothers and sisters, bad stuff happens. You mentioned Lord of the Flies. I'm glad it was you before me. <laughs> yeah, now, well, are people inherently good or evil? That's well, the question. Well, and, and you know, you put 100,000 of them together, and I don't want to take that chance. That's something I, I explored more in my podcast than, than Garrett explored in the movie, which is the psychology of crowds. Uh, uh, because... Yeah. And maybe this is like a music critic thing. Maybe we're all cynical about these festivals because I agree with you. I tend to be cynical about whether a large crowd of people will go good or bad. I tend to feel like they will go bad because of the mob mentality that takes place. It's easy to lose yourself in the crowd. If you want to do bad things, you just feel less responsible if you're with like a bunch of other people. So... And, and like you said, if it's not a community of people who right. feel united by music, if it's just right. a bunch of random people and you don't feel any connection to anyone. And nobody's going to cry that John Shares uh, Towers and PA system got destroyed, you know, and that, you know, but but a lot of other people were hurt. Yeah. I mean, it, someone makes a great point at the toward the end of the movie 
about uh, when the the riot police finally came in at the end of the festival. Yeah. And he says, you know, like if this were a hip hop festival in 2020 and it was a predominantly black audience, like would the authorities have been as patient with the with the crowd and and not because it seems yeah, like the they, like the riot police coming in they were pretty respectful of everyone yeah, yeah just uh, so put out the fires get out of here right. you bonehead kid that's not what we saw on the streets of many american cities right in the black lives matter social uprisings it, you know when you factor that in it's like it could have been even worse than it was it's a good thing that the police acted that way because it did calm the situation down and it was it was able to end you know it was obviously a terrible situation but it could have been worse but uh i think pondering that aspect of it it's another thing i think in this movie that ties it to the present moment you know that yeah because in this movie it is it is mainly like white guys oh, doing, movie, all, uh, doing, uh, doing all the bad stuff like this the movie is all makes like that bad point. white guys yeah, yeah. No, this is and it's white men right? yeah so they got a pass and if it had been an audience of african-american men there would have been a different outcome. Right. There's another scene, too. I don't know what you guys thought. I mean, this was a clip that was shared a lot uh, when DMX passed away earlier this year, him performing at Woodstock 99. Mm-hmm. And I think he's one of the great performers at Woodstock 99. I mean, mm-hmm. you, the footage of him was basically him in front of this audience of 200,000 people, him staring down this huge audience, and you feel his power. You know, mm-hmm. against this mass of humanity staring back at him. Um, but, you know, we have uh, Wesley Morris talking about how odd it is for basically DMX to be, you know, saying the N-word in his song and having this audience, huge audience of people, of predominantly white, white people. people, singing it back to him. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, what is it like for the other black people in a moment like this? What are they thinking? If they went with friends who they didn't think were N-word sayers under any circumstances, what were those friendships like? What happened? I mean, what was the racial dynamic for the few non-white people who were there? And imagine being a non-white woman, what that experience was like for you. In a way, you could say it's a disturbing moment. It's also a strange way of moment of triumph because he's totally in control of this audience of like, crazy white people staring at him (laughs) it's a very complicated scene and it's great to hear someone like wesley morris talk about it uh because there's a lot again there's a lot of layers to that as there is like a lot of layers to like a lot of things in this movie yes indeed it's a fascinating gut-wrenching movie uh stephen hyden was in that movie uh providing some excellent commentary thanks once again stephen for being our guest on sound opinions Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. What are your thoughts on Woodstock 99? Were you there? How different or similar are modern festivals in your experience? You can leave us a message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, we'll hear from some of our past guests about songs they can't live without. That's next on Sound Opinions. We are And we are back. Over the years, Greg and I have taken countless trips to the desert island, put a quarter in the jukebox, and played you songs we can't live without. This week, it's our guest's turn. First up, we've got the great singer, songwriter, and producer who we talked to back in February, Todd Rundgren. He told us a little bit about what song gets him a little bit misty. (laughs) 
when this question always comes up, you know, you got to go back to like the songs of your youth. I'm trying to think, and I guess, you know, as sappy as it sounds, every time I hear Burt Bacharach's What the World Needs Now, get a little misty. That was the thing about Burt Bacharach, you know, he had a, a just a, a harmonic sense that no, uh, sophisticated to the point that no one else really wrote the way that he did. And that was what attracted me to him originally that um, the album that he did with Dionne Warwick, where he essentially produced and wrote everything and arranged everything on the record. There is not a clunker on the whole album. As a matter of fact, some of the greatest songs ever written are on that record. And I became just a rabid Burt Bacharach fan after that. But it was also the way that the words meshed with the music. Very rarely was there a throwaway moment in you know, in a Burt Bacharach song. The words always seem to come from somebody's heart. And I, you know, I very much identified. I was an unhappy kid and there was not a lot of love in my life. And so music was where I found it and found a lot of it in Burt Bacharach. Todd Rundgren's choice, What the World Needs Now by Burt Bacharach. Uh, Jim, I got to admit, I was a little bit surprised that Todd went in this direction. Yeah. But, you know, he's got a little bit of a sentimental streak. He's been known to write some pretty poignant ballads in his day. I Now I, we know where he got them from, right? I've never been a Bacharach fan, but I may have to uh, give it yet another listen. Uh, if Todd endorses it, you know. Who's up next, Jim? Next up, Greg, we have Nancy Wilson of Heart. Let's hear what she picked to bring with her to the Desert Island. Well, it would be a Beatles album, and it might be the White Album, because it's a double album. <laughs> <laughs> so you want a lot to listen to. Yeah. But is it the best? See, now, is it the best Beatles album? Because usually the Beatles heads, Nancy, are, are uh, Revolver or Rubber Soul. Well, I think it's it's got so much character that each each guy in the, in the band has all of his various caricatures so it's a lot of cool people on that album you know that you you hear mother nature's son but then you hear do it in the road you know it's all those various variations of mood swings that might be after five years on a desert island might continue to be very interesting That is Dear Prudence off the Beatles' White Album. Uh, you know, the White Album was chosen by Nancy in toto. Uh, there is so much happening on the White Album, Greg. But Nancy, you know, is a fan of characters in great rock songs. That seemed appropriate. Prudence is definitely one. And we have another guest artist with their selection. Our third guest artist is music producer and bassist extraordinaire Pino Palladino. Let's see what he's going to add to the jukebox. Thank you. 
It's always going to be the same thing for me. It's going to be Roadrunner by Judy and Walker. Uh, it was when it came out, so it was Motown Childbusters album that my friend's sister had, I guess, the silver the silver one. Uh, Isn't it bizarre how those records that make such an impact, we remember whose copy, who we heard it, yeah, you know, what where room we you heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, because it was so exciting when I remember when I first heard, you know, it starts with that amazing drum fill, right? That Motown signature drum fill. Uh, and, and then James Jameson is just playing this beautiful walking line. The backbeat is is just kicking ass, and then a nasty little guitar thing. Yeah, it's just it's just a beautiful thing, and um, it still has the same impact on me as it had when I first heard it. So I just love that record. And then Junior, of course, comes in with that vocal and the saxophone. It's just yeah, but it was the Jamerson that did it for you. Is that is that? Did you say then and there? I want to play the bass. No, I, I didn't even know what I was listening to. I was so young. It was probably like 11 or 12. I just knew that whatever was going on on that record, I just kept playing. That was Pino Palladino's pick of Roadrunner by Junior Walker and the All-Stars. Uh, you know, a classic. I would personally have gone with the Modern Lovers Roadrunner. <laughs> man, radio on. Junior Walker, though, man, he, you know, yeah, no, not man. only a great saxophonist, but a but a very distinctive vocalist in that very competitive Motown era. He, he, he stood out. We have another pick, though, Jim. That we've got to get to. Up next is Tune Yards and their pick for the Desert Island. I should have prepared better for this question. Okay, so there's this band out of South Africa called Batuk. B-A-T-U-K. I love this band. I believe that it is a collaboration between a singer, lyricist, and... Spoke Matambo, who's an incredible producer. I And it's unexpected. I don't know why I love it so much. It's called Vida. Anyway, that's the record I keep playing over and over again. It ends up on all my mixes. What is, is it? Is it that, that African polyrhythm thing that, that you love? Or what is it about the melodies are so strong? It has Afrobeat and I would say what I, what I associate with Congolese dance music, polyrhythm stuff going on. It's just the... It's a beautiful melody. You know, it's one of those songs that takes you to that place where a lot of Congolese dance music does, I think, with those twinkling guitars overlapping and playing these polyrhythms that just, it just takes you to a place of bliss. That's what I would like on a desert island, a place of bliss. And uh, and there's something about those guitars. They just have a different voicing on them. They, you know, particularly, that, there's a whole African school of guitar playing, and it varies by region, but it's... Never any effects, either. I mean, they, it's all like the hand and the string. Hmm. I never thought about that. Uh, although I do feel like some of the, you know, the desert blues guys 
recently are playing with whatever crazy chorus pedals and stuff they can get their hand on is what it seems like to me. That was Vita by Batuk Tuneyard's blissful pick for the desert island. Meryl Garbus loves them polyrhythms, <laughs> Mr. Cott. Yeah, for sure. And for our final guest, our producer Andrew Gill talked to comedian Chris Gethard and uh, a veteran of the New Jersey punk scene. That was a fine interview, Mr. Gill. Let's hear what he chose. Having the soundtrack with a special, one thing that was important to me is the closing track is Jawbreaker, which I'm really proud of. That's a feathering cap. The opening is this song Pulp by a band called Spouter, who's a Jersey band. They put out their stuff on this record label called State Champion Records, pretty small label, friends of mine run. And I heard that song Pulp. I went, this song has everything I want. It was, and it was important for me to start. I go, I could start with Jawbreaker. Let's start with the local kids, man. Start with the local kids. So that way if somebody doesn't like this and they turn it off five minutes in it, they don't need people to hear the Jawbreaker song. But we, we need people to hear that Spouter song, Pulp, because that song is great. When I was young, I remember feeling like, oh, no matter what it sounds like, the music I like tends to make me want to just like punch someone in the face or put my fist through the wall. That song has that in a way that I really like. Take a deep breath and think of it as a movie scene. It sounds to me like if this was a movie about like a street gang and they're in there, it's like a 50s gang and they're in their like social club, you know? And all of a sudden the door flies open and somebody's like, somebody down the block is beating up Bernardo, we gotta go. And everybody leaps to their feet and runs out the door to go save their friend. Like that's what this song sounds like. That was Chris Gethard's Desert Island Jukebox pick, Pulp, by the New Jersey band Spouter. That's one interview that was only available to our podcast listeners on our weekly bonus episodes. Uh, That wraps up our guests uh, giving their tracks they can't live without if they're stranded on a desert island. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, I'm really looking forward to this show. We've got an interview with author Layla Cobo, and she's going to chart the evolution of Latin music for us. Plus, this week on our bonus podcast, we've got an interview with Alejandro Escovedo about his work to make mental health care accessible to musicians. Not one, but two chances to listen to Sound Opinions every week if you uh, podcast the midweek bonus episodes. And this, Mr. Cott, is the last week you can take our Sound Opinions survey. Well, not you, but everybody else. The goal is to help us focus our resources, make the show more sustainable, and give us more information about serving you, the listener. The survey is open until July 31st. The link is on our homepage, soundopinions.org. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our intern is Sol Delgadillo, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 